Thanks, you can have a seat. Thank you, Dana, for reading and team uh, for leading us. They'll be back, our music ministry team will be back uh, toward the end of the service to close out our service and worship. We're going to continue in worship as a church uh, by getting into God's Word. Now, just before we do that, let me mention something that this is kind of a, it's a new season, it's a fresh season, it's the season where the kids go back to school. Thank you, there it is, right on cue. All you moms, we love you, you deserve it. Uh, but in all seriousness, it, it is kind of a season where a new year starts, and it's kind of the, the informal, unofficial start of the ministry year. I don't know if that's really a thing, but it's kind of a thing for us as a church, uh, as it is for many churches. And so uh, this has been a really good summer for us, and we're going to be in a little bit of a season for the next uh, few weeks as we kind of kick off this year of sort of letting you in on some of where we're at. Our elders and ministry staff have spent the summer Uh, kind of really assessing the health of our church, which is something we do on a fairly regular basis. This summer we've put a lot more energy into that even than normal. Personally, I'm very encouraged by some things that we see uh, in you and in what God is doing in you. Uh, We're also, we've been really honest about some things that aren't going as well in our church as we aspire for them to, and we've begun a lot of conversations about where to go next as a result. And so this particular September, kind of kickoff of the year, there's a lot going on that we would like to invite you into if you're a part of our congregation. So we're going to do that in a variety of ways. Let me just mention a couple of things here before we dive into the scripture this morning. First of all, uh, we're going to start a congregational conversation. That is hard to say, okay? Try that again. A congregational conversation. Um, In a couple of ways. First of all, we're going to spend the next four Sundays starting next week in a brief series of sermons that are going to focus on some of what our vision is for, the, for our core practices as a church. The kinds of things all churches do and we've been doing them, but this seems like a good opportunity to step back and say, why do we do them? What is our vision for doing them? We, we hope that doesn't necessarily end a conversation or answer all the questions. We hope it begins a conversation amongst all of us who call Harvest home. And so we're going to be looking at how we connect together in a community and as a family. We're going to be looking at how we serve God's purposes and how we as members of this church own the ministry of the church and get involved in it according to the way he has gifted us. We're going to talk about um, our music ministry and why we sing together because we love non-controversial topics that everybody agrees on, (laughs) right? And music is one of those. No, in all seriousness, I'm really looking for that. What, What is our vision for congregational singing? Why is singing even in the Bible? Why do we do it every Sunday? How do we want to do it? Lastly, we'll be looking at reaching out with the gospel. These are essential things God has called us to. And so that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. Again, we hope those, those sermons and those services really just serve to put some items on the table and, and sort of form the basis for a greater unity within our church moving forward. The other thing we're going to do, Jordan mentioned earlier, is that two Sundays from now is our fall family gathering. Uh, so it's Sunday, September 22nd, not next week, but the following. Please mark your calendars for that. From 5 to 7 p.m., we're going to have dinner together, and we're going to really kind of talk a lot about... Um, where we're at and and kind of let our members in and our congregation in on the conversation so far and where we hope to head and hopefully continue that congregational conversation. So everybody is invited to that. We encourage you, even if this is your very first Sunday with us and you're like, I don't even know who you guys are as a church. If you'd like to come, plan to come Sunday the 22nd. We're very open about talking about what's going on. If I could ask our members to make a special priority of that, we really think it's important that you're involved in the conversation and that we together are moving forward. So much more to come. Uh, This is the final Sunday of a sermon series that we've been doing, and I always get lots of questions about what's next. 
I'm like, we haven't even finished this one yet. Please, no, but okay, that's what's next. And we'll begin our next book study after that, which will actually be in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Very much looking forward to that. An essential book to understand if you want to understand the message of the Bible. So, with your appetite whetted, we'll leave that for there. That's not what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning we are going to finish the final in this series of sermons that we have been in the summer where we're looking at six different prayers in the Bible, three from the Old Testament and three from the New, that guide our own praying. That's really been sort of our point in in looking at this. We've looked at six very different kinds of prayers that have very different focal points as models for how we ourselves can and should pray. And this morning is the final one in Colossians chapter 1, the passage that you just heard read a moment ago. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. We're going to be there in just a moment. While you're turning there in preparation for this morning, my attention was drawn um, to the second best-selling book of all time. Some of you may have heard this before, and so I ended up doing a little bit more uh, looking into it. It had been a while since I had looked at it. Uh, It's a remarkable book. Um, It has had a remarkable life. It's so popular, in fact, that it has never once been out of print in its 350 or so year lifetime, which if you just pause the ship right there and think about that, that is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. For a really popular book to outlast um, a few years of popularity almost makes us think of it as a classic. For a book in one generation to become relevant to maybe even people in the following generation is almost unheard of. It's very rare that that happens. For a book to be to to resonate with multiple peoples and cultures and eras for hundreds of years and stays relevant to not just another generation but to dozens after it is virtually unheard of. The book, of course, if you know, is called The Pilgrim's Progress, an allegorical novel written by an English preacher named John Bunyan in the late 17th century. Now, I immediately uh, introduced this as the second best-selling book of all time, and I know exactly what you were all thinking. Thank you, Dave. That's it. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about the second best-selling book. What's the first best-selling book, right? Well, the first best-selling book is the Bible. So uh, what that means is that God is the only author Bunyan was not able to top on the bestseller list. <laughs> that is not bad for a simple English country preacher. <laughs> You got to admit. The uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I'm curious, how many of you have read it ever? Like actually the real book, okay? And it could be a modern English version. Okay, several of us have. Good for you. How many of you have heard of it? Okay, like most of us. That's really good, all right? It's so popular, three quarters of us have heard of it. That's awesome. No, um, seriously, it's a, it's a book I would encourage you to pick up and read. Um, there are modern English versions. Highly recommend them. You can get them at the library or bookstores because it was written 350 years ago, and it was written in English, but that English is pretty tough for us modern people to slog through, so just be forewarned. Uh, but there are more updated versions of it. It's, it's an allegory told as a dream of a journey, a Christian's journey through the hardships of life in this world on his way to our eternal home. The protagonist is an everyman character simply named Christian. He initially learns of his sin while reading the Bible, 
Uh, these are all allegorically pictured, and it becomes an unbearable weight. The sin isn't really called sin. It's called a, a load that he carries. It's on his back, and he can't get it off. And, and the more he reads, the heavier the burden gets. He becomes obsessed with getting rid of this burden. On his journey, he meets a man named Evangelist, who points the way to the celestial city where he can finally have this burden removed. Unable to persuade his wife and kids to join him, Christian heads out on the path that Evangelist showed him by himself. He meets many difficulties along the way. Uh, He runs into the bog called the Slough of Despond, where doubts, fears, guilt, and shame swallow him like quicksand and almost end his journey before it's even begun. Later, he's conned into diverting off the path into legalism, visiting the village of morality. You start to get how the story works. In a a sort of fruitless attempt to remove the burden himself through his own efforts. Well, finally, he comes to the place of deliverance where at the cross, his burden is removed. He is freed from sin and from guilt and from this horrible weight. And there the story ends and Christian lives happily ever after. For those of you that have read it, is that what happens? No. (laughs) Actually, all of this happens relatively early in the story. Most of Christian's journey to the celestial city is yet ahead of him. Even though the initial plot tension has been resolved, how is he going to get rid of this burden? Well, by grace, through faith in Christ, his burden is gone, but his journey is far, it turns out, from over. He, after this uh, experience, he ends up tussling with uh, the enemies of formality, capital F, and hypocrisy, capital H. He slogs up the hill of difficulty. He is even forced at one point to don armor and do battle with the demonic character named Apollyon who nearly kills him. Clear references to the Bible's teachings in Ephesians chapter 6 that as Christians we are to don spiritual armor and fight a battle. I thought his journey was over. Why does he almost die at the hands of this ruthless adversary? Having narrowly escaped with his life, his path to the celestial city runs straight through Vanity Fair, a place of empty, banal pleasure where the only rule is pleasure here and now, and he is urged to give up the journey and join into the party. But when he refuses, he actually faces severe punishment because the very existence of somebody who believes that there's something beyond Vanity Fair threatens the party, and they can't allow that. Well, as the journey goes on, Christian finally reaches the celestial city, but only after being confronted with materialism, facing the giants of doubt and despair, and finally confronting the river of death itself. Why is Christian's journey so arduous? Why why does God not just take him from the moment of deliverance and whisk him away to heaven, to the celestial city, and be done with it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But he doesn't. The whole story is depicting life as a Christian in this world as a long, difficult, and often painful experience that a lot of people can resonate with. And maybe now we see maybe the most potent clue to the persistent popularity of the story to people across generations and cultures and times. 
I would encourage you to pick it up and, and read it. Uh, there's actually a, a modern DVD version of it that's just been released. I had the chance to watch it about a week ago with my family, and that um, picture up on the screen is, is from the new film. You can just Google uh, Pilgrim's Progress DVD, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, it's worth having. It's a fun watch, even for adults. Definitely great to watch through with your kids and talk about what... Um, what the, the imagery and the symbolism is dealing with. Life as a Christian in this world is a difficult journey. Well, fortunately, as is so often the case for the fictitious character in the story, God prepares us for that journey in the Bible. He does that in a number of ways, including the passage we're looking at this morning, this prayer in Colossians chapter 1. We've titled the sermon this morning, The Pilgrim's Progress Prayer. Because that's really what the sixth and final prayer that we're looking at in this series is all about. It is a prayer that God would sustain fellow Christians on the long, difficult journey of life so that they would reach the end with success. And as such, it's a tremendous model of how we as Christians can and should pray with and for one another. He starts, if you look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, saying, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, which immediately raises the question, what did he hear and what is he responding to? For the answer to that question, you have to back up to verses 4 and 5. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you all have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, ever since we heard of this, we have not ceased to pray for you. In other words, this is a prayer from the Apostle Paul for other Christians. He's heard of these people in the ancient city of Colossae, hence the name of the book, the Colossians, and he's heard that they have faith in Christ and they've been putting it into practice by demonstrating the love of Christ in practical ways and loving other Christians and that they have hope of their eternal destination. And he's so excited. What I think is happening in his heart is he's drawn to that like a moth to the flame. As a Christian, as a church leader, he hears of these other Christians who are living faithfully and he just goes, ah, oh, what can I do to help? I want to be with you. I want to blow wind in your sails because I know that that journey is hard. And so the first way he does that, the first way he blows wind in their sails is through this prayer that we are about to look at together. The prayer has three parts which are instructive for our own practice, even as modern day Christians. He prays, first of all, for their perseverance in the journey. Secondly, he prays for God's power in the journey. And lastly, he describes for them the payoff of the journey. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, in verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul prays for their perseverance in the journey. Uh, many of you are familiar with the New Testament. You know how much of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul, and so you won't be surprised if you're familiar with his readings to know that he has a tendency to um, pack a lot into one single sentence. Uh, he loves to heap phrases on top of each other and make long run-on sentences that are just dense and packed with meaning. This prayer is no different. It's really helpful to pull each one of these ideas apart and see how they relate together. Fortunately, not difficult to do. Worth the effort. In verses 9 and 10, he begins by praying. He says, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that. So now here's the prayer. Here's what I ask. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that is God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the first part of the prayer. That you'd be filled, Christian, fellow Christian, with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that is with, with insight, that's what the words mean. It's like 
I'm praying that that you would be able to understand how to live for God in every situation in which you find yourself. Good times, neutral times, really hard times. What does it mean to be a faithful Christian, faithful to my Savior in this situation? That's what I'm praying you would understand. That may be especially um, apropos in the difficult times. After all, Jesus himself said, John chapter 16, verse 33, that in this world, he told his disciples, you will have trouble. It's going to be hard for you. Now that you've come to believe in me, you're not going to get whisked away to the celestial city. You've got a long and sometimes arduous journey ahead of you, but then he told them, fear not, I have overcome the world. So if you stick with me, your outcome is sure, but don't make any mistake. It is not going to be an easy road, being a Jesus follower in this life. That's what Jesus told his followers. So, what do I do when the trouble comes? What does God expect of me? What does a faithful Christian do in response to this situation that I'm facing right now? That's the first part of this prayer. It's a prayer for the wisdom to know how God expects me to act when my own sin blows up in my face and I can no longer ignore it anymore. What do I do? It's a prayer to know how to respond when catastrophic loss swamps my life. Maybe not even because of my sin. Maybe it's just the horrible, painful reality of living life in a broken world. The fearful diagnosis. The loss of someone loved. What do we do? That's the prayer, that we would know how to take heart in Jesus' victory in this situation. That's a good thing to pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it goes on. It's not just a prayer that we would understand God's will, it's a prayer that we would act on it. He continues in verse uh, 10, prays for the spiritual wisdom, the knowledge of God's will, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every Good work. We are to know God's will so that we can do God's will. That, that's the point of the prayer. This is not a prayer for passive meditation only. This is a prayer that once we understand God's will, my fellow Christian would have the ability to put one foot in front of the next and keep going to put God's will into practice, to do the right thing, to do the God-honoring thing. And I'm praying that they would not only understand it, but that they would actually put that knowledge into practice. It can be easy, especially in times when we're hurting or afraid, to, to sort of shrink back. That's a natural human response to pain or to uncertainty, to kind of shrink back and you know, tighten up the gut and put up the defenses and put up the walls to protect ourselves and sort of wait for God to kind of paint in the sky what his will is for us. He almost never does. I mean, God's God. He can do whatever he wants. But rarely does he truly just paint in the sky what our next step is. Faithful Christian living is often putting into action what we know to be faithfulness to God as best we understand it. That's what this prayer is about. It's a prayer for action. That everything a Christian does in hard times will honor Jesus. And so he starts praying, we have knowledge of his will, we would put that knowledge into practice. And one more aspect under this first point. 
he says that we would also then experience at the end of verse 10, ever increasing in your knowledge of God. He ties these all together beautifully. To know God's will, to do God's will, to know God better. Because actually all three of those things are mutually reinforcing and interrelated. We don't truly come to know God well until we do his will. To obey God is to come to know God better. As we obey him more completely and please him more fully, we learn and experience more of him. And this is true at at all times, but perhaps it is especially true in times of pain and difficulty. Hard times can be frightfully wonderful in their ability to open us up to a fuller experience of God. It's, It's one of the lessons I've learned in my Christian life that I dislike the most, but I acknowledge the truth of it. I personally am never more, I might say, alive to God. What I mean by that is like aware of his presence, actively um, relying on him. That is never more true of me than when I'm stressed out, frustrated at the end of myself and maybe a little fearful about what's coming next. That doesn't mean I don't love Jesus when things are going well. I do. I just don't feel like I need him that much because things are going pretty well. And I'm a typical human. I like comfort. So I'll just settle into the things going well and just enjoy life and thank God for it. It's not bad. That's not where you get the depths of knowing him. Often it's only when pain, my own failure, or confronting a circumstance that I just don't have it within me to figure it all out as a pastor. Sometimes it happens in my family. Sometimes that happens in ministry where it's something has gone wrong. Maybe I've blown it and I have to face that situation. And in that sort of like stripped bare admission of, of I blew this and I need to try to go make it right, all those kinds of situations drive me to say, okay, now who is God really? Are you really gonna hold on to him? Because a lot of the stuff you normally hold on to just got knocked out from under you. Now I cling desperately to Christ and suddenly I find that I come to know him so much better. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying for here. When it feels like God has sovereignly ordained for whatever reasons that only he knows, that he sovereignly ordained that the main supports of your life are upended or removed, then we have nothing but God to depend on. And if we cling to him fully in those moments, we'll experience what fully trusting him is like. Perhaps for the first time. So this is a prayer that that Christians would know how to follow God, would actually do it, and would get to know him better. It's a prayer for perseverance in the journey. And that prayer is needed because the Christian life is like a marathon. That's the whole point of of the pilgrim's progress, even though it's an allegorical story. It, It resonates with the experience of Christians all over. In this story, the fictitious Christian, our main character, gets repeatedly conned and swindled into leaving the path that evangelist had set him on. Sometimes he's smart enough to figure out that it's a con and a swindle, and he's got to work his way back to the path. Other times he gets way far off, and he's got to, he's got to admit his error. He's got to fess up. He's got to repent, the Bible would say, and backtrack and get back on the right path. Because just like us, he loved comfort, He had a natural aversion to conflict and difficulty. It was tempting for him to stay in Vanity Fair, where we could just settle down and have fun and not necessarily continue this journey. 
But the Christian life is a long and arduous journey. And at times, it will feel overwhelming. The final destination, you see, is not a career for us as Christians. It's not a career. It's not even retirement, that holy grail of the American workforce. It's not a relationship in this life. It's not getting married or having a family or being a grandparent. None of those things, all tremendous milestones that can be wonderful, but they are milestones. They're not finish lines. Now, the final journey is heaven. Until we get there, it can be hard, it can hurt. And let's be honest, that's not a very appealing rally cry, is it? Come on to this long, marathon, arduous journey, really. It's easier to kind of chill out. Unless, unless you really believe that the final destination is worth all the pain. After all, why do people run marathons? Nobody makes them, but some of you people are crazy, right? I love the amens on that one. We're resonating now. We're preaching. But seriously, why would somebody get up and put themselves in that pain? Because at the end, it's worth it. At the end, it's worth it. Why go through the pain of childbirth? Because at the end, it's worth it. We could list so many examples of greater joy for the journey. What's currently weighing on you? right now. This is a prayer for other people. What's currently weighing on the Christians around you? People you know. People you're invested in their lives. What are they facing and dealing with? There are so many difficult situations and burdens being borne by people in this room right now. I know some of them because I'm an elder in this church and a pastor here. I don't even know them all. This is a great prayer to pray for one another. Pray that they'd persevere, that they'd hold on to and keep trusting and pursuing Christ rather than give in to temptation or give in to despair and just say it's not all. It's all not worth it. In order for them to do so, they're going to need some help. They're going to need God's help, which is what leads us to the second part of this prayer. The first part is a prayer for perseverance in the journey. The second part is a prayer for God's power for the journey. Verses 11 and 12. God's power for the journey. Once again, three phrases that the Apostle Paul piles on top of each other, praying for God's power. Verse 11, he says, I pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. We'll stop there. It's interesting. This particular point has been a main feature in all three of the New Testament prayers that we have looked at in this series. That's coincidental. I didn't choose them for that reason. It's just one of these regular occurrences in New Testament praying. The prayer that the Christian being prayed for would experience the power of God's Spirit in his or her life, transforming us from the inside out, making us more holy, and empowering us to live the way God wants us to live. It's not a surprise to find the same prayer here. He prays that these Christians would experience God's power far beyond their own power to live faithfully for God. John Piper, a well-known author and, and pastor, often teaches five simple steps for how to walk by faith, he says, in any situation. Uh, I'll share the first two of them with you here. I'll give you the next three in just a minute. But I'm struck how, much th- how well they fit this prayer. The, the first two are up there on the screen. 
He says, I always try to begin in any situation admitting and then praying. Admitting is admitting I can't, I can't do this on my own, whatever, whatever this is. I can't do this on my own. So then secondly, the other side of that coin, you, you pray. You pray for God's help in what he has called us to do. Where's, where's a guy like Piper getting these ideas? It's not all just from his personal experience. It's from reading prayers like this one in Scripture. That's what this, this prayer is all about. That, that as Christians, we'd experience God's strength for the journey. And you, and you can pray that for somebody else. God, my friend is facing this difficult situation, temptation, whatever. I feel like they're getting overwhelmed or maybe they're in danger of getting overwhelmed. Would you give them the grace to acknowledge and admit to you that they can't do it on their own? Would you, would you strengthen them? God, I pray that you would strengthen them with your power to believe you, to trust you, to obey you, to whatever it is they need to do. The wonderful freedom in this is that built into the whole mindset of this prayer, just baked right into the cake there, is this idea that as a Christian, you're not supposed to have it within you to just walk the long, arduous journey of the Christian life on your own successfully. Like you're just, you're just supposed to have that. I think a lot of times we assume that and we show that we assume it because when somebody fails to, we either wonder what's wrong with them or more likely when we fail, we wonder what's wrong with us which assumes we're supposed to be able to do it all for God. And the Bible here is saying, you get, that's not the way this works. Let's start with admitting that. God, I do not have what it takes to run this marathon successfully. I will quit before the finish line. Now, will you help me? Will you help my sister, my brother in Christ with the strength that is needed? Let's pray for one another to receive that same strength because I need it. So do you. But you know what, this doesn't end there. It's not just a power for strength to grit through the journey with teeth clenched and jaw set. I'm going to get there. Look at the next two words. They're only two words, but I wanted to wait to address them separately. The end of verse 11. For all endurance and patience with joy. With joy. This is another frequently repeated theme in the New Testament. Quite frankly, it's jarring. If you've read the New Testament a lot, you almost get used to it because you run into it so often that maybe you sort of forget how jarring it is, but we should call it out. It's jarring. Here and in many other places, the Bible is saying that the Christian life is supposed to be one where even in the most difficult and painful of circumstances, there is a real, genuine experience of actual joy. And that does not make sense. From a human perspective, that does not make sense. At the times when we would least expect to feel joy here's the bible insisting that joy should be essential uh, an essential part of your experience walking with god as a christian even in the most difficult times this isn't just a prayer for for gutting it out and just give me the strength to crawl across that finish line and be miserable this is the prayer that while i'm gutting it out there would be great joy in fact the joy is part of what helps me keep going because i'm experiencing joy in God. I'm glad those two jarring words are here in this prayer because the human heart thrives on joy. 
We do. It's it's just how God wired us. That's not like a young, old thing, a man, woman thing, a different personalities thing. That's universal human experience. We need hope. We need joy to keep going. It's because God designed us for joy, joy in his presence. Sometimes life gets so difficult, you may have experienced this yourself or probably known somebody who has or maybe somebody who currently is. Life can get so difficult that you're not even sure there's enough joy to give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's a tough place to be. When the mind games start and you're like, why is this the case? This isn't even worth it. I don't even want to be here anymore. I've sat with people in that kind of grief and heard them utter those words, and they mean it. That's what they're experiencing right now. It's heartbreaking, but it's real. It happens. It's part of grief. It's part of pain. Sometimes we need a reason to just take the next step or do the next thing. Like Christian in the slew of despond, discouragement or doubt or shame or pain can pull us down like quicksand and just suck all the life out that you don't even want to fight anymore. So how is it possible to have joy in the journey? That brings us to his third point, third little phrase here. That you would experience with all joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is amazing to me. It's like a word you can just read in the Bible and go, yeah, that sounds like Bible stuff, amen, you know, and move on. And you stop and you really think about what's being said here and you're like, this is incredible. There's joy in the journey that comes from giving thanks to God for something specific that God has done. In this case, he has qualified you to share in his inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light. Joy comes from dwelling on, dwelling on, just thinking or or noticing or or knowing, but, but actively dwelling on the great gift that I have been given in Christ. It comes from holding on to, uh, to, to God's promises. Um, I mentioned these final three of John Piper's steps. Admit, can't do it, pray uh, for God's help. His, his last three are up on the screen there. Trust, act, and thank. Trust God. He, he goes out of his way to point out uh, that this is trust in a very specific promise. The more specific, the better. That really helps with joy when I know I'm trusting in a specific promise. Verse 11 is one example. The Apostle Paul doesn't just pray that they would have joy because, you know, God is good and stuff will work out. Like, whatever that even means. (laughs) He says, here's something specific. Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's your future. Ponder that one for a while, Christian. That's very specific. Another one of my personal favorites, a lot of people's personal favorites, Romans chapter 8, verses 18, verse 18, says the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us when we get home. That's a promise. It's a qualitative comparison that you either believe by faith or you don't. That is a promise that can be dwelt upon and thanks given for it. And the more that promise gets a hold of the heart, the more joy you will experience even when life is hard. That's a promise you can pray for other people. It's really easy to fall into vague platitudes, isn't it? 
Let's be honest, I've done it. You're like, ah, somebody's hurting, discouraged, whatever. You want to help. You don't know what to say. You feel like you ought to say something, so you say something generic because it's all you can think of. Or maybe we make an assertion that we can't really back up. You know what? I'm sure it won't turn out the way you're fearing it will. Really? You're sure about that? Sometimes it does. I just went in. I got the test. I'm terrified what the test is going to say when I go back to the doctor. Oh, I'm sure it won't be that horrible disease. Really? You're sure? Maybe it will. Or we say something like, um, I'm convinced God is going to make this work out for the better, that this situation that you're fearing won't happen and this other situation will. How could we be convinced of that? I don't know what God's going to do. It's better to give concrete, explicit, biblical promises and then pray for our brother or sister's strength to believe in them to the point that they can thank God for them and find joy in them. Secondly, to act. Second, fourth. It's a list of five. I've only got three on the screen right now. Fourth is simply to act. That's more implied in this prayer than stated. Piper's point there is just, you know, do the next thing. Get out of bed. Um, make the phone call that you're dreading. Face the consequences of the action. Whatever the next thing is, you just, you just do it because the choice to act is itself an act of faith. It's a way of trusting God. And then lastly, to thank God. Like verse 12 says, to thank God for how he is showing up in these specific situations and promises. The ones that I'm trusting him for right now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to find some of those promises. We need to help one another find them in God's word. They're there. They're all over the place. If you don't know where to start, let me give you a suggestion. Start in Romans chapter 8. That'd be an interesting study. Uh, I'm going to do it. I meant to get to it yesterday and I didn't, so I was going to tell you the number and I can't, so I'm going to do it now. How many promises does God make in Romans chapter 8? I don't even know. I can think of like almost a dozen off the top of my head just from what I remember about that chapter. And they're potent, powerful promises. What if you were to go through Romans chapter 8, just one chapter in the Bible, and just, just list, just list every promise God makes. You've got an arsenal of stuff to say, you know what, God says this. Can we thank him for that now? Can we trust in him for that? You'll be overwhelmed with the size of the list just from that one chapter alone. So he prays that they would experience God's power with, for, for endurance with joy because they're thankful for the promise that God has qualified them to share in a glorious inheritance. He's prayed for perseverance in the journey. He's prayed for God's power in the journey. And then lastly, he describes really the basis of this whole prayer. The payoff for the journey in verses 13 and 14. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. Friends, if you are trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, these verses are established past tense facts about your life. To be a Christian means Jesus has changed your allegiance. He's changed your status. He's changed your destination. 
He's changed your destiny. That's done if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the basis for all the rest of the promises that we can hold on to because these are promises God made to his children. If you're here with us this morning and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins by dying in your place on the cross and embraced him as your Lord, then I invite you today to consider God's call on your life to repent and believe in the gospel. Don't let church attendance and acknowledgement of biblical truths in your mind substitute for genuine faith and repentance. If you want to talk more about what that means with somebody, I encourage you to talk to a Christian that you know or to myself and some of our uh, pastors and church leaders will be down here at the end of the service. We'd love to have a conversation with you about how to find life in Christ. Because the beauty of Jesus' salvation is freedom from sin and guilt, rescue from eternal death, and the promise of eternal life. Let's pray for one another that those truths... Those promises would fuel a life of gratitude, produce joy, and result in faithful endurance to the glory of God and the good of his people. This is a tremendous model of how to pray for one another. For uh, perseverance, faithfulness and perseverance in the journey, for God's power and joy in the journey, and the knowledge of our final destination in that journey. We've intentionally mixed things up from our normal practice in our service this morning. Uh, part of that we do, just because we don't want anything to get too routine or rote. We also realize that um, typically we have a pastoral prayer before our sermon where we come together and I lead us in prayer as a church. Uh, we deliberately move that to after the service, uh, the sermon this morning. I, I want to pray right now because we have a sermon on a prayer. So let's use this as a guide. I want to pray this prayer for you. I want to ask our music ministry team to come back up and get ready to lead us musically in worship in just a moment. And I want to invite you to just pray along with me, just kind of silently, in agreement. Let's pray together. Maybe, maybe pray these words for yourself as you're hearing me pray them. Pray them for somebody else that you know is really struggling right now. Let's be a people who put these prayers into practice for God's glory and our own good. Father, we come before you as your people. Um, all of us who are part of this church acknowledge that you are our Lord and Savior. We are here as, as we um, exhibited earlier when we received communion together because of your broken body and your shed blood. And because of your forgiveness of our sins, Jesus, we come as your children, your family, acknowledging that we don't deserve anything from you, but we have received much from you. And Father, as I look out on so many faces, I know some of the names and some of the stories, but I don't know everything about anyone. You know everything about everyone, and you know the journey that each one of us is on, what that looks like and feels like right now. I want to pray right now for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, asking that you would fill each of us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God, help us to know what it means to follow you right now, today, in this circumstance so that we would be fully pleasing to you and walk in a manner that is worthy of your name, bearing fruit in every good work and getting to know you better and better as we live for you and trust you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, God, to be strengthened with your power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience. 
There are so many hills we face we do not have the capacity to climb ourselves, but you are the God who makes hills and you are the God who levels them. You are strong enough. God, would your power infuse the life of every Christian here, giving us the strength to do what needs to be done, whether it is a huge thing we must face or simply the courage to take the next step. And Father, I pray that in that we would experience joy. As we thank you, for the specific promises that you have made to us, our destiny, our destination, and your deep, deep love for us. You told us, Father God, in Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing on this earth, neither height, nor depth, nor nakedness, nor famine, nor sword, nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a powerful promise. I pray that you would fill my brothers and sisters with the knowledge of that truth and that promise today. We thank you for delivering us from the dominion of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Empower us to walk the journey faithfully, God, for our good, for your eternal glory. We as your church ask these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with us, please, as we celebrate the love of God for us and worship by expressing back to him God's great truths in song.